Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another Behind the White Scarves Panther Soul edition. This is the one where we get to talk with a bunch of the old crew here. It was originally supposed to include my newly minted wife, Maureen. Unfortunately, the same issues that have led to so much difficulty with her providing voice content for the audio dramas is kicking her ass right now. Uh, I do still have questions for her, but those will have to be added in post, so she will be absent from some of the more general uh, socialization and joke-making, because there's going to be plenty of that uh, during this particular encounter. But in the meantime, it is so wonderful to have Loretta Sala and Spencer Lieb back on our show to talk about their characters in Panther Soul and to just shoot the shit in general, because... While it's, it hasn't been that long since we've had Loretta back, Spencer, we have not talked with you for close to three years. So it is so wonderful what? to hear your voice again. I was going to say it was like 2020, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the latter half of 2020. I know because you were the last one before we finally got Maureen on the show, and that was a memorable thing. So it would have been like, I don't know, September, October. And then Mar- I first interviewed Maureen in late January, early February, because that's where our relationship started. But anyway, let's get right to it, because if memory serves, once we get started, there's going to be plenty of content added to the pile. First of all, the big question. What does it feel like in general to come back to the world of Rama after seven years? Because that's how long it's been since the original recording of that book. And while it's always sort of been in the background in terms of Rao and Miguel have been around, for some of you, you're visiting old characters. For the rest of you, it's just you are playing other roles, but you are returning to exist in this world. I also know that Tiger's Eye always had a big placement in everybody's mind due to the strength of the story overall. What's it like, guys? I will say this is the one that I, I, I let out the biggest, like, woo, once I heard we were coming back to this one. Mm-hmm. I was very surprised to hear that we were coming back and not playing basically any of the old characters, that this was an entirely new cast, basically, of characters for all of us to be set in the same world. And I also thought that was super cool that I was like, yeah, I think Rama's probably the richest of the alternate dimensions to play around with that. So I was I, I thought that was super cool. And then I very much liked the character he handed me. So that was that was also very exciting. What uh, Maya said was true then. Everybody does want to be a cat. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Put a penny in the jar every time we make that reference. Because the book ended up doing it when it was adapted to the audio drama. And now we are including it in every one of these interviews. <laughs> so was it a lot, of, a lot more fun to play someone who was... I don't want to say that he was less serious than um, Haka was, but... Haka. Yeah, Haka. Uh, what did I say? I thought he said Haka. I heard Haka. Hacker. Hacker? Oh, it sounded like he said hacker, like hawker. Oh, what? Haka. 
I'm not wearing hawker pants. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, anyway. I will say it how I say it, and if I need to redub it later in an awkward voice that sounds like <laughs> Harker, like every time in the, I'm in the middle of saying Harker, then that's what we'll do. Anyway. Just this, this really awkward dub of you putting on an aggressive American <laughs> accent to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, how was it playing Harker in the transition from playing a character that was as self-serious as him to someone who kind of allowed himself to just take it easy once in a while with Maximus? Uh, very different. And mm. I I was genuinely surprised about the, like, oh, we're playing a new character when it's like, oh, but there's so much for Haka to do now because he's got uh, the rare thing uh, called character growth that, like, he's actually... Never almost, heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> he's almost a different cat at this point. When women ask, is you a frown cat? He say, I did, I'm more than that. I'm the frownest of the frown. And in case you... He does get his, like, one line, which is already so indicative of how far he's come, because I don't think he's the type of cat who would have never said thank you for anything in the first place. But, yeah, it was, trying to think of the word, but it it, it was it was a distinctly different headspace of being able to be comedic and being able to uh, to to actually flex like comedic timing for some of his deliveries like the the one of the anyway you two get acquainted gonna go take a nap now bye like that but uh (laughs) (laughs) but it's also because i mean haka wasn't based off of any thing it was it was just the idea of like so he's a storyteller he's also the antagonist here's his role type of thing and i just started reading out when Hawk is telling the the origin legend uh, at the campfire, reading that to myself was how I got Hawk's voice. For Maximus, Alex very clearly was like, he's based off this guy. Funny enough, it's Maximus's uh, mentor from Gladiator was the original source material for that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So he sent he sent me that video of the bit where they're negotiating to buy. Maximus to begin with in the in the original movie and so it's that guy's voice obviously there's key differences but that was Alex's inspiration so I also was like all right well then I'll try and keep it similar to him and I used one of his lines to get into uh, to get into that voice every single time but Maximus is much more lighthearted and much more comedically spirited and much more willing to like like in touch with the adventure of everything the character that came to mind as you were speaking and I don't think it's a close overlap of personalities at all but there's just little things that nevertheless make the connection there have any of you seen amphibia i've never even heard of it pretty sure you're making it up (laughs) well i am you know it's on disney i've never seen it though i did see owl house there you go it's essentially the sister show of the owl house it's a different team but i think there are people who work from both teams who worked on Gravity Falls beforehand. It came out at a similar time, and they have shockingly similar premises of this preteen or young teen girl goes to a, is isekai'd into another world, and they are trying to make their way back home, and there's other things that have overlapped, but they go in very different directions. Amphibia is much more pastoral fantasy, because a lot of it is, it's a land of frogs, and the whole first season is essentially a slice of life on a farm, but with hints of bigger things on the horizon. And one of the main characters in it is 
this frog grandpa called Hot Pop. Now, I'm gonna go into my study to get a little reading done. Uh, hop, hop. Don't do anything stupid. Eat the rich! <laughs> Did you girls just mistake me for a corpse? There's a big difference between courage and stupidity. <laughs> he is a very fun presence because he has he's very engaged, he's very much participates in the action and he has the old humor of this old guy who is set in the old ways, but he always throws himself in. And that line you were saying with Maximus of, you two sort this out, I'm going to take a nap, is very mm -hmm. sort of hot pop of, who's the voice actor who voices Goofy today? Because I think it's that voice actor who gives him a nice voice like this, where he's always very affable, but he won't take any guff from you. Anyway, I need a nap. So yeah, that's that's my point of connection. And I'm speaking, I'm aware I'm speaking to myself here because no one else in the group is aware of this thing, but I recommend it. Go see it. It's good. What were yes. we talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. That is that is that is very much the character. And I I credit to Alex in that it was like, okay, that comes across immediately. But Alex Alex's notes were very retired adventurer. The it's it's the love of the story, the love of the that intangible sensation of when you're hearing a story or reading a legend or hearing a myth of like where your imagination and history cross over. And that's the sensation that Maximus is endlessly chasing. And he finds the kindred spirit in this, you know, in this scrappy fighter of all places, this, this slave turned warrior. And it's like, ah, you're the one who I want to be my Indiana Jones, basically. And Loretta, I'm really curious about this. How did, having this new character who's gets built up to be and we find out about Maximus, we get to know him, and then we get the big reveal that, oh shit, this is Beatrice's dad. Like, how was it to sort of get this new, very defined point of Beatrice's past introduced along with a whole bunch of other stuff that would flesh out the stuff that was there in the original, but under the surface, but now is so much more open with everyone. Very specifically, you were the second person I interviewed, Lorena, about this. And mm -hmm. while I was very interested in what you had to say about Beatrix specifically, the thing that I remembered most clearly is that you just had fun playing her because it was Lucius Malfoy cut with Judy Dench. But now... <laughs> it's it's still is. It, it's, it's her words. But now it's like a very different experience to give Beatrix depth and pain and pathos that was only ever lightly glossed over in Tiger's eyes. So yeah, most curious to hear from you what it was like to get deeper into her head after your original journey with her. I kind of felt like it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I think it was, where he sees his father. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like she always knew he was there. He's always in the background. And my own birth father is kind of, he's like, he's in the background. I know he's there and I know he cares about me, but I'm uncomfortable. That's kind of how it started was, you know, like, he's here. I love you, but this is weird. Mm. Oh, God, this is weird. Mm. Oh, wait, now it's comfortable. Oh, God, it's weird again. And oh, no, I just lost him and... It was a roller coaster. I mean, I was Beatrix, you know, kind of gets her redemption arc, which is nice, but it's also very much a um like a personal growth for for both of us. It was um it was emotional, but it was fun. It was just kind of like, oh no. Hi daddy. 
I've been running around having adventures and, and being absolutely despicable and oh shit, shit, shit. Is he, is he gonna he's not gonna try to spank me, is he? What am I gonna do? This is a very different uh, version of Panther Soul that we've walked into. When I said I wanted the brushy brushy, I wasn't expecting you to tan my backside with it. <laughs> I'm I'm resetting the I'm I'm resetting the question. <laughs> All right. <laughs> But no, it was uh, it was fun and it was it was it was interesting. It was a very fun take to have. It's so obvious to me now, but it had not occurred to me until you were going through that that so much of this book is Indiana Jones and various other points of inspiration from those films baked into it. It's part of its DNA. It did not occur to me that while Colo is positioned as the Indiana Jones character in there. Beatrice is also in D, specifically in The Last Crusade, because she gets her own in the moment of Junior, yes, sir. Like the just everything is being rattled and takes everything that you thought you knew about this character and interrogates it. And that distance is so, such a part of the interaction between them and what is said and what is never said. And that's part of the tension, but it's just so glorious to think, oh shit, this isn't a book that's just about one Indiana Jones parallels. It's, oops, all Indiana Joneses. Like, they're all Indiana Jones. But they're all cats. So it's better. Yeah, exactly. So so it's, is it Meow Indiana Jones? And then the See, and then the podcast was derailed for 20 minutes while they figured out the proper cat pun. <laughs> a few minutes later. I mean, I wish Matt were here. <laughs> like, we've got a whiteboard with a bunch of cross-set options. Okay, so it's down to Indiana meows, or... <laughs> so, before now, Rama has felt like it was one and the same with Tiger's Eye. Because Rama was the world of that story. So, the story was the world. It was everything that the story of Tiger's Eye was presenting itself to be. Felt like Rama was the perfect setting for it. But now we're telling a very different story, but keeping that same world. So it becomes its own genre and it expands, but it also transforms. How did this shift in genre affect your perception of Rama as a setting? How do I put it? It was like going from like the middle and parts of like Roots, like because that's very much what it felt like. It felt like like roots and a little bit of labyrinth and that like you know he, they had to go through like this huge journey um and it's like a magical place no one's ever seen before it went from that to pirates of the caribbean for a little <laughs> bit for me and then um and then again it, it went into raiders of the lost ark and like the last crusade and all that it was it was like let's take this ball that alex has molded and given to all of us and you know let's make it our own it felt very freeing, but it also felt kind of scary mm. because you can you can see where the um, where the inspirations come from, and you don't want to spoof on it. This is this is something totally new, but at the same time, you you kind of want to give reverence, I guess would be a good word for it, reverence and credit to those previous works of adventure. It's very clear that the two of you had a lot of fun with this, but at the same time. You need to know how to be able to mix the seriousness with the humor that's endemic to those kinds of stories. It's not like there wasn't any humor in Raiders or Last Crusade or any other, you know, treasure hunting movies like that. You got to have something to break up 
the monumental seriousness of it all, especially when you're dealing with Nazis. Yeah, yeah. No, I think part of that comes from Alex writes his stories very much the way I he writes the versions of stories I tend to really like, which is they're very rarely straight up comedies. They're almost exclusively dramas in some some way, shape or form, whether it's horror or, you know, just a character drama. That's not to be said that they must be completely po-faced at all times. Like all situations have humor to reveal something a bit about myself. I actually tend to not like comedies in real life. Really? Um, okay. I have a thing about pure comedy or pure drama where those are the, like, those are the two pillars of theater and storytelling for a reason because they happen no matter what. And if you're missing either one, something's wrong. So if you try to focus purely on one or the other, I think it's like, yeah, you're just, ha you're just telling like half a story. Comedy assists drama, drama assists comedy. They're symbiotic and trying to cut one out makes your story worse. Alex does the thing that I like, which is like, no, this is a very serious story part of being serious is your characters have a sense of humor. There are moments that are inherently funny, not like you must write these scenes purely to benefit the drama, but they always do benefit the drama. In this case, you know, they make you like the characters more. They make things feel more lighthearted. They balance things out and they also can throw you off for when things get really bad later on. It's important to have those juxtapositions just in storytelling in general. I think Alex is very good at this. Even in Princess Thieves, Nag is one of my favorite characters to play. He's funny. I don't think he's a comedic character. His humor comes from being a deeply cynical, deeply jaded, broken horse being. The Nag is essentially that version of the meme where it's, I make jokes when I'm sad, but you always make jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Finger hooves. Yeah. Um. That's an intriguing way to put it, specifically because it was just this weekend that I finally started watching The Orville based mm. on Maureen's recommendation. And the thing that I'm finding myself having a hard time dealing with is as enjoyable as I'm finding certain parts of the show, the comedy is the thing that I have the most difficulty with. And what you were just talking about a moment ago, about get, getting the blend between comedy and drama right, can be very tricky. Mind, I'm not saying the Orville shouldn't have humor. My disagreement lies with the type of humor they use and when. Make the show accessible to modern audiences by all means. But it's distracting when a 25th century culture behaves too much like a 21st century culture especially when we know there are major cultural changes that set in over the course of a couple of decades. One of the earliest jokes that gets riffed on a lot is that the name of an alien deity is the same as a car rental company, and Orville characters are somehow aware of this when neither car rental nor capitalism exists in their present. That's one of the few occasions where Red from OSP and I would agree that that's taking lampshading a bit too far. New Century, by and large, avoids this kind of humor, with the exception of the nag and some later humor made possible because of time travel. Sure, it sometimes borrows jokes from other pieces of media like an homage, but the jokes all make sense within the context of the story, rather than throwing us out of it. I understand and, where you're coming from. Yeah, no, and comedy's, comedy's hard, and if it's not furthering the character or the story, it's, I think, detrimental, where it's like, like that thing where it's... Nag makes 21st century pop culture references because it's part of his character and part of the story that he can see 
through the pages at the reader. He can see into the other dimensions and he's unimpressed with all of them. He he's <laughs> they actually kind of prove his argument that none of this means anything. Whereas I've never seen the Orville, but I'm going to assume situations like that where it's like, yeah, these are jokes for the sake of jokes. And that tends to be why I tend to not like comedies is because a lot of them are just we needed jokes and there must be a funny here. And it's not born out of this is a funny moment we could go for in the character. Like, whereas Panther Soul actually has the thing where it's like, no, all these jokes are because the situation provided the opportunity. Mm hmm. When Maximus does the, anyway, I'm tired, I'm going to take a nap, goodbye now. That's not a joke to him, but it is funny. And he knows he knows he's doing a thing. He, like, he knows he's doing a bit, but it, it's not inherently a, like, like, it's not a reference and it's not a joke to him. It actually is the, no, 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 you two figure this out, I'm off. And the excuse I'm going to use is I'm old and tired. And Beatrice is just sitting there like, dot, 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 <laughs> just. The, the humor is we all know what you're doing you know what you're doing we know what you're doing but we are powerless to stop it old man go take your nap and you also he's probably gonna be like anyway goodbye now and he's gonna leave the room and go actually a nap sounds delightful i think i will um <laughs> <laughs> like i was just gonna sit there with some schnapps and reminisce some well, cat pictures uh, i would have to pick out a book and i'm going to have to open the bottle and you know what nap sounds better <laughs> I always deeply appreciate that it's like mostly what I want to read is an adventure story or a, you know, a character drama, which is what Alex is writing. It's a, it's a question you have to ask yourself whenever you're writing anything, which is how do your characters express humor? And I think Alex is just very good at that. And he gives us glimpses of that every single time. Like even, even let them go has humorous moments. And that's one of his darker ones. But I read up on this particular crossroads and it was one of the kind that they put you in a gibbet alive. Oh, Rebecca shuddered. And travellers could see highwaymen held to terrible example, thus deterring future crime. And it worked, because now there's no such thing as crime. Can I do something to help? Yes, said Rebecca, cord between her teeth, and grabbed the two closest usable items to hand, a small cloth and a corked bottle of liquid. I literally do not have time to remove the mud from your boots and trousers, so if you would... This is lemonade. And your trousers will smell lemony fresh. My point is just, I, I love getting to play the comedic <coughs> characters in serious stuff because I like having to walk that line. And, and uh, also Maximus is uh, very much my sense of humor where he's very like, again, where he's, he's not really doing a bit, but his delivery makes everything funny. Two weeks ago when you fought Jonna, you shouted something about some kind of jaguar god. Hmm, Pax. Yeah, you said you were going to make him vomit blood like Pax. Yeah, that's one creepy motherfucking god. Were you named Flapjaw at birth? Those sound like bad parents. Don't talk about my parents. Fine, but is that your preferred name? Hell no, your people slapped it on me. Well, enough of that elephant shit then. Can you remember what your name was before they caught you? What if I can't? I ask sullenly trying to hide all of my burning interest in where this is leading. What you gonna call me then? I'm not. You pick a name. For real? As long as it's not Pax. He gives me the willies. Again, he's not doing, he's not making a joke, but it is a funny moment, especially if I deliver it correctly. You'll have to let me know how I did. No, you, you, you were did well. wonderful. Like, you know you did well, come on. <laughs> it was here that I thought to compare Haka and Maximus against each other because they are both supposed to be storytellers and mentors. But Haka fails in part because he takes his job far too seriously, where Maximus is older and wiser and self-aware enough to poke fun at himself, weaving that into both himself as a person 
and himself as a mentor. In some ways, this is your first turn at playing a mentor figure, Spencer. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's not Hakka, which part of Hakka's whole character arc is he's supposed to be that for the rest of the tribe, and he's in no way ready for it. Right, exactly. And yeah. there's many different ways that you can do that. You can treat things eminently seriously, like Henry Jones Jr., or you can, uh, as an example of new century mentors, you can have more of a sense of humor about it, like the silent one literally from Tiger's Eye. I sign at her, gesturing to Miguel and I, then walking with a beckoning paw. Are you crazy? I'm an old woman. I'm not going to trek days and days upriver. I sign for question, then run my claw across my throat and point to myself, and then the room around us. By the tits of Rama, you're all over the place with that one. All right, I think you're asking if I was going to kill you. Yes, I was. I ask why with the paw gesture. Because you broke into my house! I live here in the only part of the jungle I can see everyone coming. There's plenty of food, lots of peace and quiet. You can be very, very grave and serious about everything, like Alec Guinness playing Obi-Wan Kenobi and everything like that. But even Obi-Wan Kenobi is not a humorless mentor. He is cracking jokes left, right, and center because he's just sort of observing people and realizing that he has seen versions of these people time and time again. So he has this knowing weariness, but a bit of a lighthearted appeal towards them. So he will say, who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? He knows exactly what's going to be happening, and he's just sort of having a laugh with it. Wisdom that comes from experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, comedy. I mean, you mean, there's absolutely some, some Obi-Wan in there. Taking a look at all the roles that you've played in the past, Spencer, does it bug you at all being the Sean Bean of New Century? Because no. aside from Alex, you're the one that's played the most characters that have died in all of the books. No, uh, so A, Sean Bean doesn't die in as much, in as much as you think, um, two. No, that's true. You know, I hadn't thought about that because it's funny, I don't think of my characters as, I'm, I'm up to what, three now? Four, it's Captain Baltus, obviously, uh -huh. and he's an antagonist. It's Baltus, so Wraith. Lawton Sadler, who was one right. of the original- he was one of your original characters, and he was a minor role, yeah. but, like, his death is a prominent part of Arlington. Well, yeah, yeah, it is, and I, rem I remember that mattering uh, deeply. It's just that funny thing, because I didn't record his death, so I keep forgetting mm -hmm. it happens, because he dies yeah. off screen. One of the few times where dying off screen is so much worse, like, yeah. because it, cause it's such a bombshell, and, the, and it's so coldly delivered. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm praising a completely different project that's unrelated. Anyway. That's okay, that's 90% of what we do here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We we it's, can't help but not go back in time. But so, yeah, when it's like someone delivers Lawton's head, it's like, oh, oh. Yeah, and to quote Dresden Files, it's the yeah, and they do it in the scary way where it's it's the same tone of voice as as if they're discussing taking out the trash. Like mm -hmm. it's just, it's so casual to them. Yeah. Whereas all the other three deaths I've done are in some ways horrific. Baltus deserves it, but like. They're dramatic and they're mm -hmm. they're 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 poignant and they're huge. That's so yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, um, 
If it makes you feel any better, Butler, at least you got to live after that scene in yeah. the Green Hollow. Well, and that's that's the funny thing where it's like I always think of I, I always forget my characters die because I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Some of them, my minor characters die, whereas like my most major ones get to survive. Hawk is still but alive. But in the Butler. worst way possible. Hawk is still alive. Butler's still alive. You know, um, Nag is still alive. Those are those are the ones that I always like routinely come back to is like those are my characters. But um, yeah, whereas I'm always like, oh, fuck, Annie's dead. Like. I don't think that Butler is exactly wearing the party hat of, woo, I'm alive. Alive, but at what cost? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, If anything, I find it that to me is one of those quiet, like, like Alex obviously praises all of us a lot. At least I hope he's praising the rest of you, too. Um, I, you know, I'm not privy to that part, but he praises he praises us, says we do a great job. You guys say we do a great job. I do believe it. Um, otherwise, uh, Alex is a stickler for quality. He wouldn't let us keep coming back if we weren't doing good enough for his tastes. I treat it as like one of those like quiet affirmations that I'm doing well. The fact that he keeps letting me die dramatically because that's not something you do lightly. Dying well in pure audio form is not easy. And I'm not saying that for myself. I'm saying that because dying believably in an acting form is difficult no matter what, especially when two, like you said, two of these deaths are like dramatically imperative. They're super important. In this case, Maximus having to do this like very quiet but painful slipping away it's awful to listen to and awful to record because you're having to like mentally go is this sad enough is this hurt <laughs> like like am i hurting enough people with this it's kind of the kind of the mentality. or do i just sound like a ham like what am i well, exa exactly. It's that I, I honestly, with his death, because it's so similar, I was kind of going back to Christopher Lee's bit from um, Return of the King of the like, do you know what it sounds like to get stabbed in the lung? Well, I do like, like <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Where it's like, no, I actually my goal with that was to have people who are listening to be, kind of have that sensation of like, oh, I can hear what's hurting him. And I all I want is to fix it. And I know I can't. And like that was. That was ultimately what I was going for, is that, like, pang of in, of involuntary sympathy for, like, oh, this old man is seriously hurt. And I, not not just I don't want to lose this character, because hopefully they like him enough they don't want to lose him, but also just, the, oh, I just want to be able to do something for him, because it's not fast. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> no, it's, that's actually an interesting well, way of putting it, because... Mm. Um, it almost sounds a little bit like you were doomed to play the mentor figure because the mentor always dies. And if you're better at dying than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. The Put that on your resume. <laughs> the best dyer in the business, whatever that means. <laughs> he kills it. And by, by it, he means himself, but not the way you're thinking. It's horrifying to witness, but you can't look away. <laughs> Sp Sp Spencer leave audio train wreck. <laughs> That could apply to me as well, <laughs> not for as commendable reasons. <laughs> also, also calling it now, Maureen's going to make that joke about her voice. But anyway, <laughs> it does make me wonder. I know that Alex wanted to bring you back for a while, Spencer, and I'm curious if he picked you for this role right off the bat or if, like so many other things, it was something that you auditioned for. I definitely did an audition, not beyond his usual method where he's just, hey, I'd like you to do this. Here's what I'm thinking. Give me some lines to confirm that you can do it type of thing. Ah, and, okay. Um, 
Same thing with um, Coriolanus. He originally wanted, like, I, we said this in the last interview, but he originally wanted me to be Coriolanus. I couldn't quite get the voice right. I think he did a better job. I, I would love to play characters like Coriolanus. They're they're very much my type, but Alex's voice is just so mm, buttery to listen to in any form. But and, uh, it, and he can also be a bit of a chameleon with that. It surprises me yeah, the range that he can manage. Yeah, it's funny that he, he casts so many people for his audiobooks because he could just read any book to me and I'd, I'd be happy. Like a fun side note, my current girlfriend, uh, the first time she heard Alex's voice was she listened to the, uh, he did an episode on smile and he was kind enough to let me jump in and do that for his normal podcast. So the first time my girlfriend heard his voice was on the smile and she immediately did that. Oh, he sounds lovely. I'm like, doesn't he, doesn't he? <laughs> um, anyway, all of that is to say normally He's got a pretty good sense for all of us where he's just like, you know who could play this person? This person. And he just sends us the lines. And there's usually, at least with this old group, I think there's basically no questions asked. He's just, here's your character. I know you can do this. I'll let you know if I need you to go in a different direction. And then this was very similar where he's like, you're going to be playing Maximus. The only can you do it was, are you available? Which, yes. So, no, there was no audition yes. there. It was just, it was just finding the voice and since he gates like i said since he had the reference material i was like you know i don't want to copy that voice but i find it fascinating how in voice acting you can do so many different voices without realizing just by trying to copy basically anyone else's version of something because yours unless you unless you put effort into sounding identical to someone like you're trying to get a 100 impression your impression doesn't sound dead, dead on like them so now congratulations you have a completely separate voice even if you're mimicking someone yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to hear from both of you because oh, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, like my whole thing is uh, there. It's like Spencer said, there is no audition. It's Loretta. I have plans, and I have plans <laughs> for you. And, that sounds and this is what I want to do. And I'm like, okay, cool. Send it to me. I'll get it done. <laughs> and then, like, if I've got questions, I just like message him, like, Alex, what? I'm having trouble with this. Do you? Does you have reference? And and there it goes. I mean, um. Sorry, I was just so so uh, wrapped up in listening to Spencer. I'm just like, ah, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, but being told that he's planning on bringing you in for either a character or asking you to revisit one is one thing. Because of the way Panther Soul released, did he start sending you the script for the audio drama before the book was published? Or did you end up reading the book back when it originally came out in 2021 and no, it, was, uh, it was before like so it was as it was going but it was also before like mm -hmm. he sent me the intro stuff as he was getting it and so like we we pre-recorded one thing and i think that one got lost mm -hmm. and so we had me record it again that ended up kind of being part of the uh the trailer i guess Sizzle so reel. like all of that mm -hmm. yeah so all of that was like already done like i'd done that in another chapter according to alex i had uh, so the steel is actually called cagliristo mm -hmm. and i probably mispronounced that again but i said caligristo and i said <laughs> 42 inches of caligristo steel tickling his heart from the outside and he's like you did that so well that i didn't realize that you had mispronounced it until after it had been <laughs> You brought that out so swiftly and you went from zero to a hundred, so I believe it. And 
it sounds right. You say it with conviction. Maybe in that world, that's what it is. It's, it's not Cagliostro, it's Calicristo. There we go. Done. I'm about to make another uh, Westering reference here. And put a penny in the jar. Uh, he says he wants you to do it his way. Do you understand what they said? No, but they seemed very sure of themselves. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the phenomenon we're talking about here. A little bit. Also, worst case, it's like, congratulations, world building. It's no longer Cagliostro. It's, 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 Cal it's Caligristo. That's a new place. It's a new thing. And if it's, and it's like, what, I don't, I don't know what that word means. It's like, because it's a different dimension. Don't worry about it. Like, yeah, you say that, but then we have to remember about Gibbet. Yeah, mm, well, okay. That, there's, there's a difference. There's a difference between vocabulary words and like Cogliostro's. Like it's a name. Like yeah, it, yeah, you, you're allowed to it, whatever. People, most people don't even know what you're. <laughs> most people don't know what you're referencing. And if they do, half of them are going to be like, oh yeah, the guy from Spawn, right? Like no, not the guy from Spawn. Okay, mm, okay. <laughs> at, at first, I thought it was from Puss in Boots. I mean, I'll be fair there. So to get back to what you were saying earlier, Loretta, about uh, Alex coming in and saying, I have plans. I know how he loves to, like, very specifically say potentially years in advance, this is what I want to do with this particular character when they come back. I'm curious if Alex gave you any hint as to what Beatrix's past was back during the days of Tiger's Eye, or if the script that you got for Panthersol was just all new ground and you ran what, what you were given or potentially had input either before or after the script came out, because of the weight that Beatrix was carrying around being one of the few returning characters, how did that play out for you in the run-up to the actual recording? Well, there were, there were hints, there were like bits and pieces here that she had a conscience. Mm -hmm. Um, when, you know, like she, she basically like went up to that world's equivalent of the Scarlet Pimpernel and kind of mm -hmm. gave them a, and I freaking love that movie, by the way, Anthony Anderson. Oh my God. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, she, she basically went up to the equivalent of the Scarlet Pimpernel in the original story. I mean, like this mm -hmm. was before he had given me the new script and all that. It was interesting and it was nice to, to be able to get, like I said, a character with a redemption arc, but he, he gave me hints as it was going, like, before before he'd written everything out, he did give me hints. He's like, he's going to get a redemption arc and be ready for it. But the big, and I knew, like, she's a slaver. Of course, mm -hmm. like, there's going to be a heavy background. He he coached me when we were doing the original Tiger's Eye. It's, it's like I told you before. She's not an evil person. Well, you know, tiger. She's not an evil cat. But she is a cat who must do evil in order to survive, in order to fit into this world. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, again, why she has Dr. Shira there to justify it to her employers. It's good for the stock. It's good for the crew. Like we'll, mm -hmm. we'll have better product, you know, but it's also in her mind, it's also a mercy. It's that little thing that helps her sleep at night. It's that mm -hmm. little thing that keeps her from you know, slitting her cat wrists and jumping off the, the bow. There are little bits here and there where she's getting her humanity, you know, like the felinity version. Yeah, felinity. Yeah. She's getting her felinity back piece by piece. So I knew there was going to be a dark background there. Back in those days, nice society girls, nice wealthy girls, get dressed up. Bridgerton and Jane Austen and all this stuff is going on at the same time. 
that's what they don't realize. So if she were from a good family, if she were from, you know, a respectable background, she'd be out in society. She'd be trying to bag herself a husband, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, you know, doing good works or something like that. This is, okay, you know what, I'm just getting a job here as a cleric. As, as she says in the story, you know, she just kind of ends up being that frog in a pot where if I get out of the water, I can't survive. So I have to stay in the water as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. What the fuck have I done? Mm-hmm. I knew there was hot water. I just didn't know the full extent of it. You, you knew there was going to be a pot. You just didn't know the specifics of the stew that you ended up mm-hmm. in along the way. When I first read the book, as you mentioned earlier, the first introduction to the new status quo was revealed in Beatrix's voice in Beatrix's story as we see this new version of her seeming to be somewhat akin to how we perceived her in Tiger's Eye and yet as you say little hints around the edges that part of the reason why she is so cruel like even if she's doing the right thing how distasteful it feels in some ways it's because of the self-hate that gets revealed to us later on in the book. And then during that big reveal, when she is finally telling Leah and Colo, and by extension the audience, of everything that led up to how she got to where she is, I was just thinking to myself, oh my God, this is going to be so difficult to listen to Loretta actualize in her voice as I read things like, taking care of Miguel helped her feel like there was love in her life or the part where she contemplates suicide or the part where she comes across the enslaved cat that killed the previous captain and how she had to decide what was going to happen next. But the cat just like literally jumps off the ship and would rather die than suffer any kind of justice at the hands of her slavers knowing that you were going to be actualizing all of that just could be like oh god this is going to be like a knife in the heart and i guess there isn't much to say to that but like now i'm i guess i'm doing a little bit of the toby thing here in terms of thank you for continuing to bring yourselves to new century because y'all absolutely always deliver aces whether it's the humor or the drama or the stuff that just really cuts emotionally to the core. I, I think back when Toby and I first talked about Panther Soul, back when it first came out, we knew that this was going to be an amazing performance, and it's topping our list as being like one of the most amazing things that is a part of the New Century Ufer at this point. 100%. I'm just glad that we contribute in any way to... This being a series worth having a podcast over, which I think it very much is. Like, I think this whole... Well, we think whole, so. Well, I mean, ob- obviously, but there's a there's a reason you guys have been able to keep going is because there's a lot here and mm-hmm. not and it's not just because of us. Like, 
I don't think I say it to Alex often enough. I'm pretty sure I've said that a few times, but I've, I don't think I tell him often enough where I'm like, uh, like, all right, so here's the lines, you know, sorry for being late. That's that's inevitably a part of my messages because they're, they're it's, it's always a when do you need these by two weeks from now? Got it. I will be delivering these in 13 days, even when it's like two lines. But I, I will always be like, sorry, they're late. Here they are. Let me know if you need retakes. Also, have I mentioned that this is really good? Alex is legitimately very good at this. I, I still maintain his very first book, you know, the the cartographer's handbook. Yeah, the, I was like, I was like, it's not the White Scars handbook. What the hell is it called? The cartographer's handbook. Yes, thank you. Um, cartographer's handbook. I still was like, that was already a very good book, and that was his first outing, and it's very impressive. And I do think he's only gotten better. So. I'm glad you guys think we're doing a similarly good job with his material because, frankly, anything else would be kind of kind of a letdown to him. You've already told us all your original stories about how you were fans of the other stuff that he was doing. And when he asked for voices to come in and actualize some of these things, you stepped up to the plate just to say, hey, we'd love to be a part of this if you'll have us. But... As you yourself have said, the fact that you keep hitting it out of the park every time and why he keeps wanting to give you more characters to play is already the greatest confidence that he can give in terms of, please keep doing this. And since Alex will hear this episode before we record the last of the questions we have for him, I'm sure he'll also take the time to back these assertions up in his own words, as he so often has. It's always well, worth taking time to say, thank you, you guys are great. Yeah, I mean, you're giving us your time again to come on board and, and talk to us about this. And it's because we love hearing you talk about generally anything. Lareda, you mm -hmm. once referred to Annie as your older, more experienced self, and Harry as a version of yourself when you were younger and less confident and still figuring things out. And I'm curious if in playing out her role in Panther Soul or in any kind of retrospect, do you feel like Beatrix fits into this pattern at all? Or does she remain more a costume that you've put on rather than an aspect of self? Because I've heard some different answers now from different people, particularly in terms of playing villains, whether this is something that you're drawing on personal experience for in any fashion, not necessarily something that you did, but it's like something that was a part of your past. And in some cases more like, look, I have to keep this character at a remove because delving too deeply into the darkness is just like not good for their own mental stability. Um, with Beatrix, how do I put this? I do cosplay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with Beatrix, it's like throwing on my favorite cosplay, or at least ah. like certain parts of it are. Because, I mean, it's still me under there, and there are things with Beatrix that I sort of identify with. But again, more than anything, it's, it's a costume. It's, it's fun, especially when I get to, you know, have that velveteen venom in my <laughs> voice, you know, the... Had you heard the Crimson Serpent patrolled these waters? Yes. But your employers bade you come this route all the same. Yes. Because it was faster and cheaper. I purr this with certainty. 
his expression confirms my informed estimation. I lean in close and whisper, I used to hold your position. <laughs> that was until my eyes and heart were opened. Shall we do the same for you? And for me, that's what it is. I mean, it's it's a bit more complicated now, especially because her story's evolved. Mm-hmm. But it's a costume, and it's it's a fun costume. It can be a difficult costume. But for me, Beatrix is very much a costume. She's, this is, this is a role. I get to sink my teeth into this. You know, Alex has given me something, you know, something fun and something I can grow with. But at the end of the day, it, it's a costume. I have to put her away. I have to go back to myself. And, you know, again, like I said, there are parts of my personality that are in there. It's like that with every character. You like other people in the crew. Oh, this is something that James specifically put up. James loves to do silly voices. And of course, we know all about your love of very specific voices. Unfortunately, New Century in general does not have a Pinkie Pie equivalent. I know, and it's such a tragedy. (laughs) Okay, but I have to say that Leah almost came as close as we had. When I first saw that art, with the magenta and the little reptile, who it, that to me, I was thinking, wait, is that gummy? Well, he is well traveled. That is true. Toby, you had a, another question specifically about Beatrix on the list here. Was it difficult to maintain the consistency of Beatrix's voice while expanding on her past, her motivation, and her emotional breadth that we see her go through? Was there a struggle to make what worked when this character had considerably less screen time, as it were, still work when they were taken to places that were well beyond the scope of the original text? It was, but it wasn't like, okay, so there were there were times where I had to remind myself, like, oh, she's grown here. She's less annoyed and more, how do I put this? There were there were times where he had me redo a couple of lines because she sounded irritating and she's kind of supposed to be like the if you've ever seen the mummy she's almost the Jonathan Brendan Fraser uh, yeah, yeah Brendan Fraser mummy so she she's more Jonathan um, uh. and so like yeah there's gonna be a little bit of wine there's gonna be this there's gonna be that but at the end of the day she's as gung ho for this adventure as everyone else is it's just she got roped into it once she found out what was going on. She kind of roped herself into it. And um, I, I had to be very careful not to sound too annoyed, too irritated. And to be honest, that's kind of how I would react if I were in that situation. Like, like yeah, I'm fixing this, but I am so pissed off at you. You are not going to hear the end of this. It's it, it would basically be me like, no, I'm fixing this. It's fixed. You're an asshole. Let's go. was that part necessary yes for me yes for me and it's the only way i can get this thing to work smack and and, uh, you know the machine lights up did you have yes i did let's go so it had to be a little bit less of that and a little bit more of um you know hey we're on an adventure a little more cheerful but yeah there, there were times where i had to remind myself i'm like i'm this velveteen pirate I have to be very careful not to slip into Jack Sparrow because there were, there were times where I found myself sounding like Jack Sparrow's like, wait a minute, I sound drunk. I got to do this again. And I had to completely scrap one of my performances because it was, I was slurring and I'm like, 
Oh dear. <laughs> Why is the rum gone? See, now all of a sudden I'm just picturing Leah going up to Beatrix and being like, someday soon you're going to have the chance to do the right thing. I love those moments. I especially love waving at them as they go by. <laughs> Putting all of the Johnny Depp and the and the other parts of it aside, I will I will admit that Jack Sparrow is still a very amusing and compelling character. I would generally think oh, that... especially in that first one where he hmm. is not the protagonist, but in some ways the mentor figure in that. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, the correct way to use him, yes. Exactly, yeah. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Cinema Therapy YouTube channel, I highly recommend the show they did on Jack Sparrow's psychology. Link in the show notes. I would think overall that Beatrix is not quite so self-centered as Jack Sparrow comes across as, although she would certainly have you think it to some degree. Also, again, like when she's talking in that first chapter about how the uh, the slaver captain shat his britches and how she was perfectly okay with, with the enslaved cats going ahead and uh, eating his remains afterwards. That's not the kind of thing that Jack Sparrow would really be cricket for or anything like that. That was mm. more of a Barbosa thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more of a guideline than a rule. Here I've cut out the original question due to sound issues. But the gist of what I was asking was if Loretta felt internal pressure to perform due to having an expanded role in the second Rama book. I I would like to think I did just justice to the character. I would like to think that while it's not as heavy as the first book was, the first book was very heavy, very much about you know the, the film roots and less about how do I put this? Um, it was it was definitely more about finding yourself and getting back to your origins well not quite getting back to your origins but going somewhere in spite of your origins this is more Mm -hmm. getting back to your origins and kind of fixing your past mistakes and the first one was more about making mistakes growing from them you have you have the the very dramatic character growth you you see things from what would be a villain standpoint and you don't necessarily have to forgive her but at the very least gives you the chance to understand. And she doesn't forgive herself, which for me is, it was very strong. was something I, I definitely had to carry while doing the character. In the first book, in Tiger's Eye, Prow had to learn to forgive herself. Prow hadn't done anything wrong, but she still felt like she didn't deserve forgiveness. And by being with Miguel, she realized that she did. Beatrix will never truly forgive herself but with her new friends around her she'll be able to cope it feels as if she has managed to move beyond the point of self-destruction and that this has to head towards some end where she can die and then that the matter is done and it feels as if she is even if she can never forgive herself, she is affording herself the possibility and the opportunity to do good and to be happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I especially love the fact that, like I said, she she got to go up to uh, to the equivalent of the Scarlet Pimpernel and mm. just be like, hint, hint, people are going to die, hint, hint. 
I don't know why you care. Oh, I, I don't. I'm, I'm just letting you know. You know, just don't. Uh, shut up. I don't care. It's not like I like you or anything. Yeah. That fancy cravat. Um. <laughs> Proceeds to completely go for that outfit choice when she's a pirate <laughs> captain. We also now know that there's going to be a third book in Rama called Planet of Cats. And aside from how Panther Soul left off, it's all just a nebulous idea of what such a story could involve. And I'm curious from each of you, Loretta, based on everything that we've talked about so far, where would you want to go next with Beatrix's story? Since it feels clear uh, that she's going to continue to be central to events with the group that I have informally titled the Kitty Cadre. Uh, well, I mean, next next stop is mentor. I mean, I've been a villain. I've been a hero, sort of. So the next would be mentor. It would be because, I mean, if you think about it, uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, again, I'm making this reference, um, Jack Sparrow thought he was the hero of his, of his story. Mm-hmm. What he didn't realize was that he was the unwitting mentor and then later he became the mentor especially in where um he's literally having an argument with himself does he want this does he want to take over davy jones's responsibility and he does because he wants the immortality but he doesn't because he doesn't want the responsibility and um he realizes that william turner is the one who needs to be the new davy jones so that's what he does. That's how, A, that's how he saves Will's life. And B, that's how he kind of sets the seas to rights. But that's kind of what I'm hoping will happen next. Alex hasn't given me any hints. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I'm hoping I get the chance to, to, do a, to have a mentor role. Maybe find a kitten that very strongly reminds me of my dad or reminds me of my monkey. You know, mm-hmm. my, my Miguel. Mm-hmm. You know what? You don't have a family. I don't have a family. Let, let's be each other's family. All of a sudden, I'm reminded of when you're talking about the, the concept of being the antagonist and being the hero. The thing that comes to mind more than anything else is Jack from Mass Effect. When we're first introduced to her, she's this person that's committed all these crimes and killed all these people. She's pulled in to be, you know, ostensibly a hero in order to help protect a whole lot of other people. And then we get to see her big uh, turnabout in Mass Effect 3, where she ends up teaching a whole bunch of other biotics like her and ends up discovering that she cares about people now that she's been given the responsibility to care about someone. Going down that line, Jack is also a character who is absolutely convinced they're the main character of their own story because they Mm -hmm. don't... Because Jack has learned everyone else can't be trusted. Everyone else sucks. And Jack Jack was literally raised in her personal hell to be the only important one. Literally, the, that lab revolved around her. I recently replayed Mass Effect 2, so this is all fresh in my mind. But that lab revolved around her. Like, they literally killed all the other kids so that she wouldn't die. So she got very convinced that she, her story was the only one that mattered. Hers, she had to look up her own story. So she's the, so she is the protagonist of the universe. And being around Shepard and then the kids makes her realize, oh, turns out there's other people in the world and they've all got their own stories. And mine isn't as all of a sudden, the galaxy make, suddenly makes my story seem so very small. And I think 
similar growth is happening here. And it's also just an interesting perspective for any of the characters that we all play where, cause we all know that one character in a story out of a bunch of stories, out of a bunch of dimensions where like the only one who is entitled to that kind of ego is like the nag. Cause he knows how relevant <laughs> he like, like, and I don't mean that comedically. I mean, like he literally knows his role in the story and it actually upsets him. Like mm -hmm. he's, he's like Deadpool, but without the killing instinct. Yeah, well, that you but know. No. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, yeah, no. Well, I mean, it, it gets it gets boring after a while. But um, <laughs> you can only you can only go on so, on so many Grand Theft Auto killing sprees before you're like, yeah, whatever. I've seen it all. Five star wanted is five star wanted. It's all the same. I think that's actually almost an interesting. I I, I know Alex hates the word interesting, but he. he evokes it a lot i think it's a, a fascinating theme whether alex intended it or not that because he tackles storyteller characters so frequently in all of his stuff which i think is actually one of the only consistent themes he act like you said it's like oh he gives you the characters who dies he actually gives me the storytellers more than anything between haka maximus and um hell even rafe do a little bit but like haka, haka maximus and butler they're all storytellers and I think something Alex is playing with, whether he realizes it or not, is characters who understand that life is a story and they are at the very least curious about their role in it. And I think the interesting thing about like Maximus is he knows he's not the protagonist. He also doesn't really want to be, at least not anymore. He might maybe in his younger days, but now he knows he's not the main character. He's hunting the main character. He found it in Colo. And he's excited mm -hmm. to see where that goes. And I don't, you know, when he's dying, I don't think he's like, oh, the trope of the dying mento. I don't think that's what he's doing. But <laughs> if, if anything. Oh, son of a bitch. I didn't oh, in the back of his me. mind, you know he is. He was oh, like, him. Oh, I walked right into it. Um, No, I I actually think when he's dying and I tried to put a little bit of this into his into the performance where he's more worried about like he doesn't want to hurt Hollow and his daughter for like. I don't want this to be part of their character development. Like, like he's almost apologetic for dying, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, where he's like, oh, I so didn't want that to happen. And not and not for me, but for their sake. Or he's like, I didn't want to die on them. Like, they're it's... not ready. They are so not ready. Well, especially especially after he almost dies in the early, early on where he gets so injured, like where his leg gets messed up. Like, mm -hmm. um, where he was, he was like, I'd have been fine with you leaving me behind there because then you know no one has to see this whereas like dying slowly in front of everyone is is exactly what he didn't want to do but i i do think that idea of characters knowing or at least being curious about what role they play in the world at large is a consistent thing and i think I think it's fascinating to see which ones are the ones who are convinced they're the protagonist, which ones are begrudgingly protagonists, and which ones are like, I'm, don't, do not put that on me. I am not the protagonist. And then there's a couple who are like, oh, I'm the villain and I know it. <laughs> so that's us. For now, anyway. Next time is going to be a little more scattershot, because Loretta had to leave early from the original Skype call, which means we'll be jumping around in space and time for the next episode. As I piece together questions for Spencer, questions for Loretta, and also questions for Maureen, who I had to wait to ask till her voice was better. To play us out are some Behind the White Scarves outtakes from the last few sessions. Don't worry, Alex has a bunch more bloopers, but I got done with this before he could send me the next batch, and I was trying to get this sucker out. Also, apparently KDA was such a big hit the first time I used them, We'll end with another track that makes me think a little bit about Beatrix. This one is from a K-pop artist 
which means some of the lyrics are not in English. I highly recommend you look them up. Pay no attention to the missing audio foam on the wall. We're hitting that time of year where it's so hot that my adhesive starts failing. Mm-hmm. Um, One of so ours I'm, actually already fell off too. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking into more permanent solutions. I've been reluctant to put, you know, like nails or stuff on the wall that I remember. I mm-hmm. own these walls. <laughs> well, there you go. I can That's, do whatever I want to them. Put as many holes as you want. I was just going to say, I have a setup so unprofessional. Uh, I'm not even in front of my camera. (laughs) (laughs) We have a wonderful view of the side of your ear. Mm. (laughs) It's perfectly okay. I don't even have a room of my own to do this in. Like, we have our bedroom, but Maureen's computer is reserved for that room. And the way we have it in our tiny two-room apartment, I have my desk and Maureen has her work desk, not her gaming computer, which is the one in the bedroom, right next to each other in our living room. So you're seeing my front door behind me right there. <laughs> oh, beautiful. You're right, too. I apologize. It's a very if it, lovely door. It's, it's a good door. <laughs> uh, um, I have listened to a few episodes in preparation for this, so I've, I've, I've done my homework. Oh, God, so you know we're definitely going to go over two hours then, because we just ramble yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell yeah, me you I, didn't start If I with... suspiciously disappear around the two-hour mark, you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, please tell me you didn't start with the Let Them Go uh, episodes, because we got better. Oh! Dog! Hello, that's Quentin. a dog! Oh. oh, my God, it's... Oh, my God, it's Kiki! Oh, oh my God, Kiki. it's Kiki! <laughs> <laughs> Kiki needs a nap. Need She's a nap. been napping this whole time, so <laughs> that, oh, that doesn't that... mean that they don't need they need a nap to recover She's... from an afternoon she of napping. Subscribes to the Hobbit philosophy of napping. There's mm-hmm. early morning nap. There's mid morning nap. Elevensies lunch nap. nap. Yeah. It reminds me of the cat from uh, Red Dwarf. I need to catch a nap so I have enough energy for my afternoon snooze. also it's it's actually kind of a surprise because as i recall from the stone spring maidens interview uh kiki was trying to get your attention this whole time the Mm. last time we did the interview and she's like sitting there's like now is it time to play now now standing in the in the threshold just staring at me she's very quiet which is Mm -hmm. good for a podcaster's dog i suppose but then she would bring her toy and just drop it and then stand behind it and very patiently stare holes into the side of my head. <laughs> so, yeah, but today she elected to deflate on the floor and take a nap. Aww. She's very good at sleep. Oh, yes. Aww. She put a lot of her uh, ability points into sleep. Mm-hmm. That is my dump stat, so I really should. <laughs> <laughs> So, so how is the king and his horse? I mean, like, he hasn't been around to say hi, which, frankly, I think is rude, you know. Uh, well, I mean, what kind of king and, uh, could he I be? When I spell horse, I, when I spell mm. horse, I use a, a W in mm. front of the H. So, I mean, mm. that's, I that's, that's my whole feeling hey. on that right there. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, think that horse was one of those words that you used to have the extra U in, but, you know. You never know with, the, with these this weird English spelling. 
we just like to keep everyone guessing with uh, arcane spellings of words, just yeah. just to keep you it's, on your toes, you know. It's W H O R S. I see. Yeah. And a G in there, a silent G in case of any accidents. And a and a P, just because you know you we we don't know when we might need it. And an H in case some herbs come along. <laughs> I never say herbs. I exclusively say herbs. Oh, really? So you're yeah. you're, you're you're bucking the trend of the usual, because because that's that's who, the way that, that right, who has it. time in the day to give that extra H when you're like when you're cooking? Do you really want to just dedicate the extra brain space to say herbs? No, you say an emphatic herbs, please, because. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> I, I I always thought Eddie was making that bit that bit up. I was like, no, no what? Not even the British say herb. No. <laughs> you know one of the weirder experiences that I had, and I don't even know where this was made. So, for all I know, this could have been a localization. But the first time I heard it pronounced herbs was in an episode of Captain N because her, <laughs> because herbs are a, a healing item. Captain uh, and you, you never is Leon Kennedy in it? What? In like the old yeah the, the Nintendo like the Nintendo, Nintendo Saturday oh my cartoon God. yeah yeah with like the power glove or what. I, I tell know. you, man, it's a crime that Captain N was never introduced to Smash. Like, I'm <laughs> only half kidding. That's a, gonna be a, like the final 2025 edition right as there. It's a, a trophy and at it's least. It's gonna be virtual, right? Yeah. Right, uh, like or an assist. Yeah, for sure. Thank, thank you guys for having like 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 you thank me for being here thank you guys for having me because otherwise i have no one to talk to about all this and like <laughs> i well and i, I can't remember if i've said this, this space exists for well it's also just that thing where it's like i can't remember if i've said this before but i actually almost never get to listen to the books or read the, like i don't get to listen or read to them i just don't have the time also i'm not i'm in a weird space of my life where i almost just don't read things anymore and i feel as as someone yeah, who would do, I, as someone I find who, that difficult too. <laughs> as someone who read all of Wheel of Time in like high school and college, like willingly, like it's so mm. funny that I'm like, and I don't have time for Panther Soul, really? That's what I've gotten. That's where I'm at in my life. I don't, it's just something about the way I consume media. It's it, I don't I don't do books so much anymore. So all of these thoughts I have are just purely off of the lines. Alex gives me. Those are my glimpses into what's going on. And so this is just the amount of thoughts I have off of that and i'm like oh thank god i oh thank god i can tell them to someone <laughs> <laughs> we're glad to be your outlet for that then absolutely i'm i'm glad you have this outlet the, like i as soon as i heard there was a podcast about new century i was like you're right that was a hole that needed filling where the hell has that been so <laughs> <laughs> we saw a need and we wanted to meet that need and it's been a real treat that we've been able to get as much out of it as we have because of course we could <laughs> well yeah yeah now now you just also need a spouse that's the the it's, <laughs> otherwise it's unbal otherwise it's imbalanced toby is married oh yeah no i i got married uh like later this year it will be two years ago yes was it was it because of the podcast though no nah. it was not uh, I, see no nope, doesn't count doesn't count okay doesn't do count <laughs> I will say that I didn't dislike Repo the Genetic Opera. I can get definitely get what you were saying, Spencer, about it being that there are parts of it that are catchier than the rest of it. My biggest issue with Repo the Genetic Opera was all of the gore, unfortunately. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, the, the course, the, just the, the central tenet of the play. Got it. <laughs> all right. So, like, the opera was fine. It was the genetic that sort of rubbed <laughs> you the wrong way. Well, I mean, no, I didn't have an issue with the idea of the fact that, oh, yeah, people are taking people's organs. Just like, did you have to be quite so graphic about all of it? during certain parts. It's like I was watching Zydrate Anatomy for the first time, and I was mm -hmm. like, oh, this is really catchy. Oh, you just got into the surgery on the street part of it. Yeah. 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 Um, My favorite uh, gruesome musical, despite the fact that it only has one song that it does over and over, is, of course, Mortal Kombat. Look, okay, 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 look, look, look. The Mortal Kombat soundtrack absolutely slaps and is like really formative for like my taste in music like the way who it's... is arguing that yeah who the fact is arguing? like like my friend and i are like oh yeah mortal mortal kombat the first movie you know it's not bad we i've rewatched it a few times and it's like it's not it's not a great movie but it's a fun movie it's cute and the music's really really good and it's actually like deeply formative not just for me but for like video games and movies in general of associating like dance music with fight music because there there's a lot in common especially with stage choreographed fighting this is so not related to the podcast but um stage stage choreographed fighting like you see in movies where it's like yeah timing it to the music is it's more like dance than it is like actual fighting but then you get to Mortal Kombat Annihilation where it's like well the soundtrack is even better but the movie's even worse like, <laughs> is it even better the soundtrack I mean I I I think I think Annihilation soundtrack is better but that's just because I like the like some of the stuff off there is some of my favorites ever like i really like fire and i'm a, such a sucker for lunatic calm like and apparently sure. so so were the wikowskis because they used it for morpheus versus neo as well and, no really yeah wow. um and, and annihilation came out several years before the matrix i don't know if they got the wikowskis probably got it from where its original source which is just the 90s dance club scene what you're I, saying they, is there's a greater than zero percent chance that they got it from Mortal Kombat Annihilation. They were probably sitting in the theater. They were sitting in the theater going, "Well, the fights are cool and the music's great, but fuck this movie." Um, like, <laughs> like, like they probably had the same reaction I did. But uh, yeah, no. Uh, there's so often where I'll start playing Lunatic Home and people are like, "Oh yeah, the Morpheus versus Neo," and I'm like, "Incorrect. First, it was Sub Zero versus Scorpion." <laughs> this yeah. is one of my favorite tangents. That's, yeah, it is. <laughs> It is with great regret that I must steer us back from Mortal Kombat. Uh, oh, we'll, we'll bring we... it up again. I'll, I'll just figure, I'll uh, just make it. I'll just make it related to what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Maximus is like Raiden in that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought someone else might be trying to join the call, or maybe we lost somebody and they were trying to get back in, but. Never mind, moving My on. My god, the call's coming from inside the building. The call is coming, the from, inside coming the call. from inside the Skype call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah same joke. High five. Awesome. Well, well done. Yeah. High fives all around. Yeah. So I've, I've got a very vast reading list. I used to read the classics for fun, so like, I, I love the idea of the, the Three Musketeers, but I freaking hated the story because it was so much like a self-insert when you actually read it again, you're like, oh, my God, D'Artagnan's a dick. Um, <laughs> so the book is called The Three Musketeers and then this other guy. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty I've, much. I've, I've, I've never gotten over. It's like the three musketeers. There's four main characters. Like, it's, and it's not about the act like like the three the three musketeers are not the protagonists. <laughs> like,
It yeah. depends on how the book you're writing. I mean, they call it Moby Dick. They don't call it Ishmael. So yeah. is D'Artagnan hunting the Three Musketeers? <laughs> L- little known fact: D'Artagnan is actually a whale. <laughs> no movie has, has cast him properly. Sorry, um, I was making a joke and I talked over her. Well, no, because the kind of joke I was thinking of probably wouldn't be appropriate for the podcast. The Mower of Editing. So, um, <laughs> so whales have a have a part that's prehensile. Oh God! And so maybe instead of it wasn't actually whale that was on the land, it was his dick oh, that was boy. fighting all of them. And he was just had it like a puppet. I don't know. I'm 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 fucked up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Moby Dick, and welcome to Jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Moby Dick's dick, and welcome to Jackass. I'm Moby's dick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not the electronic guy. The, oh, okay. Anyway, this is all getting cut. Anyway. <laughs> You oh, you think never this know. This is getting cut. Well, oh, my I, sweet summer child. I will cut it myself if I have to. You will open up the audio track and you'll be like, "Wait, why is there like three minutes missing? I didn't do this." There's nothing there but a hoof print. Why does the waveform look like Spencer shaking his head disappointedly? 